thank you and welcome to all of our new supporters on Patreon. This is an independently produced show, written, researched, produced, edited, distributed, and promoted by us, Carolyn, Kristen, and Michelle, and paid for out of our own pockets because it's important to us. But you can help us pay the bills by clicking the Patreon link on our website, poppreservationist.com, or by going to our link in bio on Instagram and finding the Patreon link in our link tree. It's one of the best ways for you to tell us that you like what you hear, so we can keep on trucking. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Well, and I think he's one of those artists, too, that can really bring a group together. I mean, no matter um, anybody who grew up in that time, no matter if you ended up really liking, you know, hard rock, or you were a Barry Manilow fan, or you were punk, whatever, I you hear John Denver um, on the radio, or they play, you know, country boy at a wedding. Everyone is out there. I just feel like his music really brings people together. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. I, it's, yeah. it's known by everybody. Hello world, is a song that we're singing Come on, get happy A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing We'll make you happy Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society The podcast for people born in the big wheel generation Who wore thongs to the pool On our feet, people we believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we will be saving the man who filled up our senses and put sunshine on our shoulders, his Rocky Mountain Highness, the far-out John Deutschendorf. I mean, Denver. <laughs> I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Well, life on the farm is kind of laid back. Ain't much an old country boy like me can't hack. It's early to rise, early in the sack. Thank God I'm a country boy. Few artists could pluck every melancholy string in our hearts like John Denver could. His talent for capturing just the right lyrics and pairing them with the perfect music set him apart in the 70s. Couple that with those round wireframe glasses, and you had an icon in the making. To me, John Denver was a brand. John Denver was a look. He was a sound. My gosh, even his name was a brand. He sang Rocky Mountain High, and his last name was Denver? <laughs> well, actually, his last name was Deutschendorf. He was born Henry Deutschendorf Jr. on December 31st, 1943, in Roswell, New Mexico. His father was an Air Force pilot, and his career made the family move a great deal. And Michelle and I can certainly relate to this because um, he moved his freshman year of high school to Dallas a little bit after the beginning of the school year started. Ouch, that just makes my skin just get all tingly. Exactly. Parents, don't do that. Yes. Don't do that. Mm -mm. Although everybody listening probably doesn't have small children anymore. (laughs) But you might be able to relate to that feeling. Um, Mm -hmm. But he found his place in um, chorus. So he joined uh, the chorus class and chorus. And one day he was asked to bring in his guitar because he had mentioned that he plays guitar. And as he tells the story, the rest is history. People went from not knowing who the heck he was to John Deutschendorf in our is no <laughs> wow to knowing exactly who he was. Well, can I also He's, say that moving yeah. the beginning of your freshman year when you look like Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch has yeah. got to right. be even 
an added just like almost mark against you. So when he pulls out the guitar and he that voice comes out, that's helpful. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. And it kind of made me think of what we learned about Karen Carpenter when she, to avoid gym class in high school, you know, what took marching band. And because the only thing that they could put her in, because she didn't really play an instrument, was percussion, that's where she got her introduction to the drums and decided, hey, I really like the drums. So if it wasn't for that experience in high school and joining band, who knows? God, mm-hmm. arts education, discovered man. that talent of hers. Right. That's, that's why it's so, so true. Arts education. Mm-hmm. Um, we wouldn't so. have these heroes if it weren't for arts education. Right. John's love of music and his talent found him actually leaving college early and eventually joining a folk group called the Mitchell Trio. Now, this trio performed around the country, primarily at small venues and colleges. And it, it was at one of these college concerts that John Denver met his first wife, Annie Martell, in 1966. Yes, that iconic Annie of Annie's song. And guess what, listeners? That meeting happened right down the road from us at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota, Annie's hometown. Can you believe? I just got goosebumps for some reason because I didn't know that. Isn't that crazy? And how many kids there know that history? Like, do they know they're at the alma mater of Annie? Like, we don't have to say anything besides Annie. Right. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so my niece is in the choir at Gustavus right now. I'm going to call her and say, you guys should end every concert with Annie's song. Every concert, right. (laughs) Right. Every concert. Annie and John married in 1967, and after living in Chicago for a brief time, they moved. You guys, they moved to Edina, Minnesota. (gasps) Kristen probably already knows that, but (laughs) Edina, Minnesota. Is this what you didn't didn't want me to know? Oh my gosh, you didn't know that? I didn't know either. You You didn't? No, yes. it is Caroline, what I didn't want you, you to know. Live in Edina. I live in Edina, and not only that, Kristen. Every time I drive to your house, I drive by where he lived. I <gasps> oh drive my gosh. John Denver's I was apartment. Ask you, I because yes. I was like, somebody lives in John Denver's house, and do they even know? Do they even know? It's an apartment, okay. and um, research found not my research. I glommed onto someone else's. If you looked in the Hennepin County actual phone book. In 1968, you oh would God, have found so good. Henry John Deutschendorf Jr. listed, and he they actually lived in an, um, an apartment. Okay, you want to know another little factoid? Yes. You guys, my friend Martha, her dad, says he remembers seeing a guy named John Deutschendorf performing at the Adina Country Club back in the late 60s. Stop it. I, I know. I believe it. I know. Be- because guess what? In 1969, he actually performed at Edina High School when there was a protest concert and more than a thousand students walked out of class into the gym to protest teacher cuts. They thought teachers needed to be saved, arts education needed to be saved, and lo and behold, John Denver played. And guess what? Few of the students even knew who he was. Oh, not yet. Yeah. yeah I, no, I mean, they he's go not a person not yet. yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And he... Um, there's actually pictures of him in the yearbook and stuff um, performing at Edina High School. Wow. I know. I just, I was dumbfounded, you guys. I was, I like, had no I idea of even... his connection to here. That's so, that's such great information for me. Yes. He even in interviews, I read a couple of articles where he was interviewed. He considers Minnesota one of his, or Minneapolis and Edina, one of his hometowns. Like, this is where a lot of Oh my God. I just got goosebumps. Did they stay here just because that's where Annie was from? Um, Yeah. Is that why they stayed here? 
I think okay. that was a, obviously a big draw. Chicago was just too much. And um, they, I guess, still wanted to be or needed to be kind of near a big city because he still he was traveling. He was part of the trio the, and starting trio, his okay. own solo career. So he needed to probably be near an airport and that kind of thing. I'm guessing on all this. But and then, yeah, her parents were really close. So, okay. um so, yeah, so they were here from 1968 to about 1970. It wasn't long after before John's career started to take off. John Denver recorded and released approximately 300 songs in his career. Wow. About 200 of those he composed. He had 33 albums and singles that were certified gold and platinum in the U.S. Four of those singles reached number one on the Billboard charts. Can you guess what those were as oh, a God. singer? The number oh. one songs. He the only number had one four. Songs. He only had four. One of them was Annie's song. Yes. Yeah. One of them was Sunshine on My Shoulders. Yes. One of them was Thank God I'm a Country Boy. Yes. And the last one is Rocky Mountain High. Has to be. Sunshine on My Shoulders, Country Boy, Annie's song, and I'm Sorry. That was a number one song? Yes. And then I have Take Me Home, Country Roads, peaked at number two. I think that's right. Yeah. But where does that leave us with Rocky Mountain High? So that yeah. wasn't even on there. Um, so that, as I'm saying it out loud, that sounds weird, everybody. Are you looking right now? I am. Like, I'm looking um, at It does yeah, say, I'm look. sorry, reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart on wow. September 27, yeah. 1975, as well as reaching number one on the Easy Listening chart. Yeah. So how um oh, you know what the Rocky flip side of I'm sorry was a great song Calypso. What? Oh, I, I love that Calypso, song. I love that one. Zero, the berries you I don't know the words, but this is how I Calypso like to sing that song. So long and so well. Now that we're talking about his music, let's yeah. chat a little bit about that, about okay. what it meant to us, what our favorite songs mm-hmm. might have been, favorite memories. Um, because guess what? This past summer was actually the 50th anniversary of Rocky Mountain High. Can mm. you believe that? You guys, we seem it. to be coming into contact with so many 50th anniversaries lately. It's because we're old. Yeah. It's... <laughs> We're just hitting everything that started. It's like our prime began in 1972. I know. Everything that is important to us started in 1972. Yeah. I mean, that was just a great, well, the whole, the 70s, such great iconic decade as we um, have a whole podcast chatting about a lot of that. These are not records that I had in my house. This is in the category of a lot of records where I discovered them at somebody else's house. And this was at Ann Chase's house. Her parents had all the John Denver records, and they also knew a lot of information about them. And so when we're looking at the cover of Back Home Again that has John Denver sitting on a log with his wife, Annie, and Chase is telling me, this is his wife, Annie, and this is what the song is about. And they have two children. They adopted two children. Their names are Zachary and Anna Kate. And we want to talk about this family as if we know them personally. And then Ann Chase was the one to, and she was the one who introduced me to all the songs, like Grandma. Grandma's Featherbed. I mean, that is a kid's song if I ever heard one, right? Thank God I'm a country boy. I did a tap dance to Thank God I'm a Country Boy in seventh grade. You should have seen me in my turquoise overalls and my tap shoes. 
I know. <laughs> Your parents don't have that on any kind of You film, guys, I started dancing in the era prior to the VCR. Yeah. And that is a huge loss. There's, I mean, my dad could have taken Super 8 movies, I suppose, but um, first of all, you wouldn't have the music. And secondly, I would have killed him. (laughs) I would have been like, I'm going to sit down on this stage and I'm not moving until you put that camera away. I would have loved to have seen it, though. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Any other feel? (laughs) Class. Does anyone else in the class have some feelings? (laughs) I mean, my feelings, I, I think for me, I, shockingly, I don't remember um, specifically listening to John Denver when I was younger, but I obviously did a lot. I'm going to doubt we had John Denver albums at my house because that jo- John Denver just does not seem like my mom's um, genre of music that she listened to. So I'm going to guess I listened to a lot of John Denver when I was visiting my daddy. Um, and then just on the radio all the time, because certainly yeah. these are mm-hmm. not songs that I became aware of when I was in, you know, middle school, high school, whatever. These are songs that are just part of the fabric of our childhood. So yes, on the radio, but, um, to me, John Denver, we've talked about this many times, but his music, almost all of his music, and it's just his voice. To me, my feelings are just that, that lumpy, <laughs> that lumpy, almost twisty feeling in a really good way. I have a lot of feelings associated with John Denver songs. Um, I just don't know where they came from. (laughs) Well, and I think he's one of those artists, too, that can really bring a group together. I mean, no matter um, anybody who grew up in that time, no matter if you ended up really liking, you know, hard rock or you were a Barry Manilow fan or you were punk, whatever, you hear John Denver um, on the radio or they play, you know, country boy at a wedding Everyone is out there. I just feel like his music really brings people together. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. I, is, yeah. Is it's special. known by everybody. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, any favorite songs now that we're oh talking about this music? Um, Michelle? It's what's impossible. One of your favorites? It's, well, it's almost impossible to pick. Um, so this is hard. So I pulled a Kristen and I have a couple of ties. Um, <laughs> so my first category is in fun songs. And These are two songs that I remember singing in fifth grade music class. And these two songs, we would all clap. We would sing our hearts out. And I remember these two songs also were like the only songs the boys would get so into. It's Thank God I'm a Country Boy Mm -hmm. and Grandma's Featherbed. And Grandma's Featherbed was one that was just, well, both of them were just a rollicking good time in the fifth grade music class. Do you guys remember when, so we didn't have, like, we'd leave our classroom, we'd all have to walk in our rows, you know, down to music Mm -hmm. class. In fifth grade, it wasn't like choir where you had to audition and it was an elective. Everybody has to go to music class. So sometimes a lot of kids in your class don't like music class, but everybody liked to sing, Thank God I'm a Country Boy and Grandma's Featherbed. How can you not love a song that has lyrics like this? I'm going to sing it now, but please don't put this in. (laughs) (laughs) It was nine feet high and six Six feet feet wide. wide. Soft as a downy chick. Made from the feathers of four eleven geese. Took a whole boy to walk for the chick. In old eight kids, four hound dogs. The figure we stole from the ship. Didn't get much sleep, but we had a lot of fun on grandma's. God, I I love it so much. Like 411 geese. And then besides 411 geese, my favorite lyric from that song is, um, and a piggy we stole from the shed. I love it. Anytime you put in piggy, 
I know. People are going to love piggy it. Piggy we stole. You got to use okay. the word piggy. So it's great. a good okay. word. And before I go to my next song, um, I just want to tell you a really fun story, you guys, from one of our um, great supporters and um, one of our Patreon patrons. And this is from Amy. And when she found out we were doing an episode on John Denver, she shared this story with us. She said, um, so she was a little sister to siblings who were 8, 11, and 14 years older than she was. So she said they listened to a lot of John Denver growing up. And when she was in college, she and her sorority sisters went to see an acoustic duo who sang Grandma's Feather Bed. Now, can we just stop right there though, for a moment <laughs> and imagining the acoustic duo and they chose to sing, of all the John Denver songs in his catalog that would go perfectly for an acoustic duo, they sang Grandma's Feather Bed, whatever. Um, but Amy says her sorority sisters were fascinated that she knew all the words. And so they had her write them all down so that they could memorize them oh, too. Cute. Isn't that cute? And Because they liked it. Yeah. And it is a song with a lot of words, right? Yes. And then Amy says, like 25 years later, she taught Montessori. And it was a song she used to sing to all her little Montessori kids, which is so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, we love that story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Okay. And then my other category where I have ties is just the, the songs that make me feel all the feels. And of course, one of those is Annie's song. I think Everybody probably feels that way. Um, And I think we all know, obviously, it was written um, for his wife, Annie, um, after they had had a, after their first separation and near, near complete breakup of their marriage in 1974. But John Denver said he wrote, it was one of the fastest songs he ever wrote. He composed it in 10 minutes on a chairlift um, in Aspen because he said he was just reflecting on all the joy he found in his marriage and his relief that they were back together. and I think that to me, that song, the melody is so beautiful, but it's the lyrics, especially these, that just make this song for me. Come, let me love you. Let me, let me give my life to you. Let me drown in your laughter. Let me die in your arms. That's let me poetry. Beautiful. That is the most beautiful what love everybody letter. longs mm-hmm. to hear. Oh, that yeah. he wins everybody over because everybody wants someone to sing that to them. It is a love letter. It's the most beautiful mm-hmm. love letter, and I think you know. The, you know, we know that sadly <laughs> it wasn't enough. Um, but yeah, it's it's beautiful. And Annie's song is obviously a big wedding song. So my dad sang this oh. a lot at weddings. You fill up my senses. Like a night in the forest, like the mountains in springtime, like a walk in the rain, like a storm in the desert. And I don't even, this isn't the category of of songs for me, the ultimate sad song in which I don't even have to hear the song to start crying. I just have to think about the song and I start crying. I get all choked up. And it made me so invested in this person, Annie. Who is Annie? Who is Annie? She's on the cover of the album, like I said. Not like like Linda McCartney where she's on the cover of the album and then he puts her in the band. No, he just puts her on the cover because of this beautiful song that everybody is so invested in. He never says her name in the song. So I I think I called this song, You Fill Up My Senses, Mm -hmm. for most of the time. But then when I learned the title, I just needed to know all about Annie. And as a result, we all fell in love with them as a couple. 
hashtag couple goals. She was his mountain mama, right? (laughs) We were so invested in them that when he remarries and he releases a new album in the 90s and there's this video of him canoodling with his new wife, we're all like, no. 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 We don't like you. Who's that bitch? Right. No. We don't like her. How? I mean, that's horrible. That poor woman. I'm sorry, John Denver's second wife. I'm very sorry, but I was like, no. (laughs) I just refused to go there. Yeah, it's like we cross our arms and turn our heads sideways. Nope. Yes. Right. You fill up my senses is exactly, Kristen, you just nailed that. That's what I always knew that song as. I think mm-hmm. I was probably a young adult when, you know, this is to, to, to my husband and myself. I mean, John Denver is our bonfire music. That is our, yeah. that's something that we bonded over right away too when we were dating. We love to sing John Denver. And, and it sounds like we're like, like we're an acoustic duo. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> but, um, I remember when I would look at playlists on our CDs and I'd be like, Annie's song? What's Annie's song? And when Annie's Annie's song song would come out, because I, unlike you, I didn't go back to like, I don't remember the album cover or know that story until I was a young adult. And I then remember loving the fact that her name was never in the song, but the song was just simply, he could have called it anything. I loved, always loved Mm -hmm. and thought it was so much more beautiful and romantic that he called it Annie's song. Well, and then that makes it able to be a wedding song because it doesn't say, you fill up my senses, Annie, with it, right? Like you don't have to worry about who they're singing to. It's a song for anybody to sing in any wedding. Right. Yeah. It is a beautiful, God, that is a beautiful wedding song, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Everyone starts Mm -hmm. boohooing immediately. Did your dad sing it at weddings? All the time. Oh. All the time. Yeah. Want, would he sing it for us now? Could we get a little like? Um, yeah, he probably would. Okay, <laughs> like have that as a little. I should ask him. Yeah. I'll have him do the. I'll have him do the little voicemail thing and sing. You fill up my senses. You now could, my dad is like he's like a um like he's a how do I describe it? If you heard his vocal music performance for his vocal music degree, what you would hear is It's not English, right? So that's how he sings. So when he sings, you fill up my senses, he doesn't sound like John Denver. He sounds like a man singing opera, but you fill up my senses. It's like Luciano Pavarotti singing. Um, yes, that is exactly right. Josh and Groban's I'm pretty sure version. Josh Groban. I, I think Josh Pavarotti Groban. has sung Annie's song. Look it up. I'm pretty sure Pavarotti has sung Annie's song. I don't like when he sings any songs, like no, when he covers, no. but does a cover. Like, no. I'm sorry, Pavarotti. You just, no. opera singers should not do covers. I kind of think no, that we about love you for who too. you are. Yeah. Agree. Um, Agree. Okay. Another song <clears throat> that's one of my favorites that I don't know that it's a lot of people's one that they think of immediately when they think of John Denver songs, but I chose it because this is another one that I remember singing in choir. Now I've moved to middle school choir now. So now I've had to, you know, now this is for the real kids who want to sing and you, know, you, right. get a you part. chose to be there. You get a part, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we sang this song in one of our choir concerts. And ever since then, it has just been one of my favorite songs. And that is follow me. And this is oh. another song that John Denver says he wrote for Annie. Um, Also, he said this um, on The Tonight Show in 1974. He said he wrote it for his wife, Annie, whom he had to leave behind when he was touring early on in his career because he couldn't afford to take her with him. Oh, gosh. Hmm. 
I think that's, well, that's where a lot of busyness happened with John Denver too, when he couldn't afford, yes, you know, I'm using did. air quotes. Oh. I'm sorry, Annie, I yeah. can't afford mm-hmm. to take you with me. But anyway, mm-hmm. the lyrics at the beginning are so beautiful, but yet they're heartbreaking. It says, it's by far the hardest thing I've ever done to be so in love with you. So alone. Follow me where I go, what I do. Make it part of you to be a part of me. And again with the poetry, John Denver. How is um, he able to say those things? Mike yeah. could I if I could offer Mike a million dollars and he wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to say that. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of those oh. songs. So can't you just hear um our like our you know, sixth grader standing in choir and you've got the altos, you know, follow me. <laughs> What I do, <laughs> where you know? I go. Yeah, that was my part. Follow me. <laughs> Let me tell you a really interesting fact about that song and getting back to um, John's min- love, love of Minnesota. He flew in especially for the wedding of Minnesota TV personalities Nancy Nelson and Bill <gasps> Carlson. And he sang this song for Good Follow company. Me. Yes, at, his, oh at the God. wedding. Oh, my God. No way. I grew yes, up on way. Good Company every day at 3.30. There you go. <laughs> wow. He flew in, especially for their wedding, and was a soloist performing oh. that song. Okay. Um, Kristen, let me know what some of your favorite songs are. So my favorite, much like Michelle, was cemented in music class with Mrs. Burson with her <laughs> auto harp. You know, she's got her auto harp in her lap. I love and she's the auto harp. Can I just oh. say I loved the auto it harp? It is good, yeah. And also, can I just give a shout out? You just gave a shout out. I should, you know how I remember nothing from my childhood? I can remember, so my fifth grade music class was also my middle grade my middle grade, my middle school choir teacher, and that's Mrs. Casperson. And we remember oh, Mrs. Mrs. Casperson because Mrs. Casperson was kind of like the tight perm, giant glasses, <laughs> kind of short, you know, um, a little frumpy, 1979, 80s woman, but Miss Casperson drove a pacer. So Miss Casperson was elevated in all of our minds because she was, she drove a pacer. It was the coolest thing ever. Okay. Anyway, she got cool points. Hey, Miss Casperson. I think she's dead. Go ahead. So Mrs. Burson was one, was one of my music teachers. My other music teacher is my dad. Um, I, you know, Mrs. Burson with her auto harp, you know, and she put the, the lyrics on the overhead projector so we could all sing. (laughs) Who among us has not belted out country roads as we road tripped through the Blue Ridge Mountains, or as you cross the state line into West Virginia, or simply when you turn onto a country road. Country roads take me home to the place I belong West Virginia It's become an anthem. It's impossible. Even if you just see a mountain 
You just see it and somebody starts going, almost heaven. If you just see a mountain, right? It's so known by the culture that even our Gen Z children know this song. There was a time a few years ago, I wonder if this bled over to your guys' areas as well, when this song took off among school kids. It was kind of like when Toto's Africa had this resurgence for a while. I don't know if it was TikTok or I don't, but suddenly every other kid at the piano recital or at the school talent show was playing Country Roads on the ukulele. And they did it with glee, like they had discovered this hidden gem of some kind. And of course, all of us in the audience are like crying and we all know we're clapping and we all know the songs <laughs> like, how do our parents know the words to this song? And of course, it is the official song of the state of West Virginia. But I was super disappointed to learn that the Welcome to West Virginia sign does not say Almost Heaven. I swear to God, I've seen this. West Virginia, Welcome to West well, it Virginia. Should. Almost yeah, Heaven. It should. It well, doesn't. No offense it's a, to our West Virginia listeners, but have either of you ever been in West Virginia? <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not um, almost so they were like, that would be a lie. That would be not truth in advertising. <laughs> I have a question. Did he ever, like, did he write that song because he ever lived in what? Did he have a tie to West Virginia at all? Funny you should ask, Michelle. Oh. <laughs> it's almost like that was no. scripted, which it wasn't. That's yeah. right. John Denver had never even been to West Virginia, really? nor had the people who wrote the song. The people who wrote it were named Bill and Taffy Danoff, and they were friends of John Denver's, and they would eventually go on to form their own band called the Starland Vocal Band. <gasps> Sky rockets in flight. flight. Afternoon delight. Yes. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who wrote this song. Neither one of them had ever been to West Virginia. They wrote the song as they were driving through the state of Maryland. And for whatever reason, the scenery reminded them of postcards that they would get from a friend of theirs who did live in West Virginia. So somehow they made it, I guess it was like almost heaven, Maryland. We have a patron, a 1976 patron, I believe, that lives in West Virginia, because I believe I I mail little packages when I send those out to our our, bicentennial members. Um, I do address one to West Virginia. um, I would imagine that as you're driving through the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Shenandoah River, it is almost heaven. It is. Right? No matter what what the state line is. Yeah. So the Danoffs... The, or in other words, the Starland Vocal Band, the Starland Vocal Band people really wanted Johnny Cash to sing the song because they didn't think this really was John Denver's type. Like, this does, this is not John's style. Oh, my gosh. Really? And it goes it's, on to be his signature yeah. song. Yes. It's his signature song. And it goes on to live forever. Yes. It's an anthem. So it was released in the spring of 1971, but it moved up the charts very slowly because he's still a little-known singer. People don't really know who John Denver is, but it eventually reached number two um, later in that year, and it stayed on the chart for 23 weeks. The, for six months, it was, yeah, was on the chart. If I'm doing the math correctly, <clears throat> that's half a year. That is half a year. <laughs> Look at me so doing af- math in season seven, guys. Good for you. Thanks. <laughs> Took seven seasons. So as you know, and as everybody listening knows, After hearing the first verse, almost heaven, people are compelled to join in on the chorus. It's involuntary. It's like a sweet Caroline moment, right? Mm -hmm. And this is from songfacts.com. I love this so much. They say people feel compelled to join in on the chorus, especially in a group environment or if alcohol is involved. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hashtag bonfire. (laughs) That's right. So this came into play with the St. Louis Blues hockey team. They learned this in 2019 when they played the song during a break in the game. And when the play resumed, they faded the song out just as the chorus was about to begin. No song. And the crowd in all together in perfect synchronicity sings the chorus. And a tradition is born. So this is the song that is now played at every single game. And when they get to the chorus, they turn the track (laughs) off and the audience sings it a cappella, just as the play resumes on the ice, which is very surreal because this is does not seem like the soundtrack to a face-off, really, country roads. And then on the Jumbotron, it's so funny because you see these grown men with hockey hair and they're arm in arm and they're belting out John Denver. Just at the top of their lungs. I love, I love it. it. See, like we said before, it is his music brings people together. Mm-hmm. It, is it does in these it communal does. moments. Mm-hmm. I have the chills. That's so fun. <laughs> it lo- it allows people to let their guard down and be happy for a moment about something simple and fun, right? That we all share and know. Yeah, I mean, this is the shared experience. Just beautiful. And think about that as part of his legacy, right? This man has been gone for a really long time. And sometimes his reputation took a few knocks. And um, now here he is being played at every game of a national hockey team. And how many of those thousands of people are in the audience? Thousands and thousands Mm -hmm. of people are in the audience. Just pure joy every single time they go to a game. Of all all ages. uh, Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, you know, I just get emotional about these things. I know. It's okay. I love it. I know. (laughs) Do you have your season seven Kleenex box? Right. (laughs) It needs to come down from the ceiling. I remember, it's so funny, I remember road tripping from, actually, I was caravanning from Minneapolis. I was moving to North Carolina with a friend, um, actually, the friend whose father saw, who saw John Deutschendorf at the Edina Country Club. We're caravanning to North Carolina, and we're... I'm right behind her little Honda. I'm in my little Mazda pickup. And I see a sign that says Blue Ridge Mountains. We're not anywhere near West Virginia, but I see the Blue Ridge Mountains and I start going, almost heaven. (laughs) And I sing the whole thing and we get out of the car and Martha was like, I did it too. (laughs) Like we were both caravanning, singing the same song when we saw the sign. Mm -hmm. And then as you're singing the song, and I think this is John Denver's intention, as I'm singing the song, I'm looking around at the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm like, holy shit, this is this is amazing. I may not have even noticed. If I hadn't seen that sign and started singing this song, I might not have stopped to notice how stunningly beautiful this yeah. is. Well, I would argue that that anytime people are in Colorado and see a sign for the Rocky Mountains, they do the same thing with Rocky Mountain High. Mm-hmm. And the lyrics, too, I will say, when you talk about poetry, just that whole notion, he was born in the summer of his 27th year, what that means, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't until he stepped foot in the Rocky Mountains that he said, I'm uh, now I've come to be now I'm mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. coming home to a place he'd never been before. before. Right. God, it's so great. Okay. I also want to talk a little bit about, cause I'm leaving on a jet plane. And, um, you talked about this a little bit, Carolyn, you brought this up when we did our new intro to our sad songs episode just a few weeks ago, the I'm not crying. You're crying. Um, as a song that really chokes you up and makes you cry. And, I have, I never thought that I thought that I was, I sort of had neutral feelings about leaving on a jet plane. Um, But then I listened to it again after you brought it up and I'm singing along 
because who doesn't know the words to this song? And I find myself choking up when he gets to the part that says, So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. That's my favorite Again, part. Oh, God, it just hurts, right? And again, he's saying the things that we all long to hear. And this is the interesting story about this song. It has long been categorized as a protest song, but it is not. It was written by John Denver and became a huge hit for Peter, Peter Paul, and Mary. Um, and it's often thought as an anti-war song against the Vietnam War. But actually, John Denver wrote it in an airport in 1966 as a confessional begging for forgiveness as an unfaithful traveling musician. And he says, there's so many times I've let you down, so many times I've played around. I tell you now, they don't mean a thing. Oh, oh, John wow. Denver. Uh, <laughs> well, they, in I the mean, end, they did, actually. <laughs> Michelle is giving yeah. no leeway on some of mm-hmm. that. But the song was released in 1967 by Peter, Paul, and Mary, not by John Denver. And it didn't do much for two years. Until... 1969, when the war in Vietnam is reaching its peak, and what the public heard was a man on the verge of being deployed and desperately trying to get things straight with his lady. And he doesn't want to leave. He's clinging to this life that he doesn't want to leave. And he's scared. And he's promising, when I come home, I'll wear your wedding ring or bring your wedding ring, depending on who's singing it, John Denver or Mary Travers. And the listener is now going, oh, please, God, Please, please let him come home. It's excruciating. So it became Peter Paul and Mary's biggest hit. It went to number one in 1969. John Denver's um, version never charted. And yet, that's the one that I think of. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. me too. When I heard it, first heard it as a little kid, I knew all the words, Mm -hmm. sang along. And it wasn't until I think I had these experience of of saying goodbye and leaving people that I really loved, which only happened as I got older. And now when I hear that song, it's like he was able to put that, just that awful piercing feeling of saying goodbye to someone that you love um, into words. And and to the music. I mean, the music makes you feel that, too. And I am just Mm -hmm. there again. And it's sad. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. Because I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back. My favorite song, um, or the one that I guess means the most to me, especially that now that I've done a little research, is Sunshine on My Shoulders. Mm-hmm. So that song was originally released as an album track in 1971 on um, his album Poems, Prayers, and Promises. I just love the title of that darn thing. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. I, know. I love that title. It wasn't released um, as a single until 1973. It went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in early 1974. And, as I said, having done a little research, I love this song even more because I discovered that John wrote it experiencing one of those late winter gray mushy days that we get here in Minneapolis Mm -hmm. and just imagining what it feels like when that sun actually hits your shoulders and you get that warmth after the winter. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy
sunshine in my eyes can make me cry. And I can so relate now, having lived in Minnesota for as long as I can, I know that feeling, and he captures it. And when he talks about, you know, the sunshine on the water, I think he was walking around Lake Harriet. He was. I have do- wondered that, Carolyn. Well, because I'm saying do you recall, he was. Oh, do you recall the story about? Yes. And this was, again was also in our um, in our sad songs episode. I talked about Liam and Liam and I walking to the lake that is near my house, and he's in a stroller. He's like a two year old, and I think we're having a conversation about how beautiful the water is, the sunshine on the water is, and how the sparkling water makes him cry. And he's actually quoting "Sunshine on My Shoulders." I was like, "Wait, what?" He's like a John Denver um, savant. At- at two years old. Yeah, he's like a gender response. <laughs> and now, just like you, Caroline, I'm like, oh my God, what if, because this would be the lake closest to his house. Right. What right. if that's actually written about my lake? I, I think it is. Oh my God, I can't even stand it. That's what I'm going to go believe. And mm-hmm. so it puts a whole nother spin on this song for me to love. Yeah. Um, because really, before even learning all this, even though the song isn't necessarily sad, it would make me feel kind of sad, like really oh, melancholy. It's the uh, melody the, of it, I think. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. And I also think um, because of what I probably associated it with. So another reason that it gives me this heartachy feeling is that it was the theme song to the 1973 CBS TV movie, Sunshine. That's right. Do you guys oh remember that movie? Describe it. The movie, no. cry- it was based on a true story, so a docudrama, about a young mother who is dying of cancer and wants oh. to record um, this last year of her life. It's a very aggressive oh, I don't think I um, watch that. form of cancer. I it know. is super mm-hmm. sad, and that's the theme song to it. Actually, the soundtrack contains oh. seven John Denver songs because he found out the woman that the uh, movie is based on his music brought her some comfort during this last mm. year of her life. So when they asked if they could use his music, he was honored to have that included in the movie. Now, just a little bit of fun facts about this movie. Lindsay and Sidney Greenbush, who would go on to be Carrie and um, Little House on the Prairie, this was Carrie their TV debut. Right. Yes, this was their television mm. debut, was playing the toddler of uh, this character that was dying. And get this, you guys. The actress that played the character's mother, Brenda Vaccaro. <gasps> Brenda oh, Vaccaro. <laughs> With my she sells tampons. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, it's her. Um, it's her daughter dying. So, um, yes. So that is why. Up until <laughs> wow. I learned this other stuff. It was always so sad to me because I always associated it with this movie, which I also thought that the Sunshine Family Dolls was based on the characters from this movie, but oh, I don't wow. think they I have did that. too. That's why I didn't like those dolls. I did oh, not like gosh, them. What? You thought the yes. dolls were based on the movie about the woman dying yes. of cancer? And I was yes. afraid of them. What? I was afraid. Yes. It was just scary. I love the Sunshine Family dolls. They look like Mary um, and um, her husband on Little House on the Prairie. They do, but they were always sad to me. I thought, who 
Who would want these dolls that where the mom dies? I just yes. I couldn't figure it out. That's Who where. Who wants um, to play that their mom dies? So did you guys also then think like that. sunshine? Like anytime you heard sunshine was associated with the movie, like go yeah. outside and play in the sunshine. And you guys oh, were like, word. no, I'm no. But if die. you said it was on my shoulders, if you said, oh, I feel sunshine on my shoulders, I would have, I would have mm. thought of it. And that is a heartbreaking movie. I mean, it's right that up there is, with Brian's song. Oh, oh I won't watch movies yes, like is. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. While there's no doubt that John's music made a lasting impact on us, he wasn't just a one-trick pony. Not only no. did his voice uh, come out of our speakers, but we could also see his image on the screen. Yeah, he was right? really. Yeah, he was everywhere in the '70s and all through the '80s. Um, and I, I don't know about you guys, but when I think about John Denver in terms of an actor, I immediately think of Oh God. Um, Me too. And, mm-hmm. Oh God, um, listeners, if you haven't listened uh, to our episode devoted to the movie with George Burns and John Denver, Oh God, that was a really fun and surprising episode for us. We kind of went into it yes, thinking, where are we doing this kind of obscure mm-hmm. movie that, but that we all loved, although Carolyn watched it for the first time. Right. And it turned into such a fun conversation. Yeah, it was a deeper conversation, which we yeah. tend to do a lot. So yeah, go to wherever you're listening to this uh, podcast or our website and scroll back till you find Oh God. But um, anyway, um, I think we mentioned this in the episode, but it's worth repeating because at the time, Oh God was the highest grossing comedy ever. And John Denver's performance was critically acclaimed by both critics and audiences. Um, and that movie, it just really stands up. We talk about that in our it Oh God does. episode. You can watch it today and it holds we, up. Yeah, we highly recommend it. Uh, but besides Oh God, the next thing I think of when I think of John Denver, the actor, is the Muppets. <laughs> Do you yes. guys think of the Muppets? Totally. Yes. yes. And so after, um, after his first appearance on The Muppet Show in 1979... John Denver and Jim Henson apparently developed a lifelong friendship, which sadly wasn't very long because Jim Henson died in 1990. And that led to other collaborations like The Muppets, A Christmas Together in 1979 and Rocky Mountain Holiday in 1983. Have you guys seen that one? I don't know that I've seen John Denver takes The Uh -uh. Muppets camping in the Rockies. It is so dang cute to see all the Muppets. They're just hiking along with John Denver and they're, you know, they're kind of bouncing because you can't see their legs, obviously. Right. So their little bodies, you know, John Denver's walking. He's hiking. This is walking. Yeah, he's walking. And they all, when they pull up, they're all in a big pickup truck. So some of the Muppets are in the cab with John Denver. He's, John Denver's driving, obviously. And then some of them are all on the back, but um, it's really cute. I rewatched it last week. Um, And of course, Fozzie is afraid of bears throughout the whole thing, oh, which cool. is the kind of the running gag, you know. Um, that album, My dog looks like Fuzzy Bear. Yeah, and of course they yes, have to sing Grandma's right. Feather Bed in that one. Uh, oh, yeah, in, in the in the special, listeners, if you, I'm sure there's listeners out there that remember this this special and that are that are saying, I remember that. But they come across like this old shack in the Rockies. And of course, there's these old Muppet, like, you know, miners or whatever that live there with like all the, the beards and the eyebrows that are so big that all you see on their Muppet face is a big nose, you know, and they're like playing banjos and everything. It's really cute. Um, I have a fun fact about that. So the album Rocky Mountain Holiday, they released in 1982. The special didn't come out till 1983. But in 1984, that album was nominated for a Grammy Award for for best album for children, but it lost to, are you ready for this? Oh, to what? Michael Jackson's E.T., the extraterrestrial storybook. 
Oh, no. Yeah, that doesn't seem I don't seem know about right. that one. Yeah, but how could John Denver and the Muppets lose to Michael Jackson singing about E.T.? Well, and I if I recall, I'm I'm going to be honest here, I never listened to the Michael Jackson E.T. thing, and no, I was true. a big Michael okay. Jackson fan, oh, yeah. but I remember seeing that and thinking, I don't, I don't want, I don't want that. I don't want that. Well, especially yeah. the Muppets were huge back then. So, um, I mean, they still mm-hmm. are. Um, and yeah. so, so besides, oh God, besides the Muppets, John Denver is also often remembered for his many, many, many television specials. And oh, he God, hosted the Grammys the five times. You guys remember the one, um, I forgot the year, but it's Sean Cassidy's first appearance and he's got the giant 77. bow tie. Yeah, yeah, 77. Yes, 1977. Yes. Yes. I love that one. That's such a fun one to go back and watch. Um, so I am doing my research for this because, you know, it's so tough. Isn't it tough, you guys, doing homework and research for our episodes? Oh, yeah, we're working so hard. Mm-hmm. I know. So I had to go back and Someone's um, got to do of, it. I guess. <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. Um, a couple of the specials I watched over this uh, past weekend were um, John Denver and the Ladies. Thank you, Carolyn, for bringing that one to oh, our God. attention. John oh. Denver and the Ladies. That is a 1979 <laughs> television special. And it's John Denver and White Tails. And here's his ladies. We've got Valerie Harper. Great. We've got Cheryl Teagues. I mean, these are hot ladies of 1979, mm-hmm. right? We've got Valerie Harper, Cheryl Teagues, Tina Turner, Cheryl Ladd, and... Irma Bombeck. <laughs> what? <laughs> Which, okay. What? Also, was, can I just say- Irma Bombeck was on TV? Why? Yeah, well, 1979, Irma Bombeck is hot, a hot commodity. This is right. when she, her, I mean, she is all over the news, everything, right? She's so, she's such a popular author. And um, don't forget, before that, there really hadn't been someone writing, you know, humor pieces about just being a housewife, and right. raising your mm-hmm. kids and doing the laundry, cooking dinner before Irma Bombeck. So, um, yeah, my mom loved her. Remember oh, my I mom love when her. you're, I still love like, her. If life is writing. a bowl of cherries, yeah, why am why? I always in the pits? But I also watched his 1988 Aspen Christmas special. So that's nine years later. And this is John Denver just being who he is. Um, yeah. this, you know, he had many Christmas specials, but I chose to watch this one. Um, and it had everything I want in a Christmas special. I mean, Aspen at Christmas should be contained in a snow globe, right? It's gorgeous. He sings besides Christmas hits, he sings a couple of his greatest hits, which when you have a, when you have, you know, a singer who has a Christmas special, you always want them to sing, you know, he sings um, country roads in it. He sings Rocky mountain high in it. And then his guest, you guys, his guest is Anne Murray. And I love oh. Anne Murray. And I especially love Christmas song, Anne Murray. Um, and she sings a couple of Christmas songs, you know, of course, while strolling through the snow and like, you know, watching the horses run by and watching the children have snowball <laughs> fights. And then he introduces us to his new wife, Cassandra. And oh, he sings a song me. he wrote for her, complete with the montage of them in the snow. Do you guys remember the Donnie and Debbie oh, montage yes. from the Osmonds Family Christmas oh, where God. they're like throwing snowballs at each other and they're walking, holding hands and looking. It's the song he <laughs> sings for her that he that he says he just wrote for her and he says how they how they met and how they got married while he's sitting with his arm around her. Um, and so there's that personal touch to the special, even if it is his new wife. And it's not Annie who we will always be right. to in love. Um, and then I mean, I'm also- sorry, you can't like you can't introduce us to your true love, and then introduce us to your other true love. I'm sorry, second wife. I <laughs> feel just, though that's like how that's the what math it, works, but that's that's what I felt like when I watched it. I felt like 
because then he makes a big deal of that he had to write this song for her. And that felt gross to me because oh. we know oh, he's written, we know Annie's song, there's nothing that will ever compare to that. And mm-hmm. so when he says he had to write the song, and I almost felt most sorry for her. And if you watch the special, yeah. and I encourage everybody to do it, actually, you guys, it's one of those that like, you know, when you just kind of want to watch a, an old Christmas special during the holidays, it's on YouTube, I think. Um, but she looks very uncomfortable when he's talking about how um, they met and everything. She looks very, she's sort of sitting very stiff and straight and making no um, expression. He also made a couple of notable Christmas movies, which were totally the precursor to Hallmark Christmas movies. And I watched the 1986 classic, The Christmas Gift with Jane Kaczmarek, total Hallmark Christmas movie trope. Jane Kaczmarek. Which I was all there for. She was Jane Kaczmarek. She was Malcolm in the Middle. Um, The mom. Jane Kaczmarek. She married to Bradley Whitford, I believe. I think they're divorced, sad to say. Oh, they are. They got divorced because I really loved them as a couple. Yeah. Yeah. Are they really? I didn't know they got divorced. I'm pretty sure. Um, But she's super young. I mean, this is 1986. It might have been one of the first things she ever did. But um, yeah, it's the total... Hallmark movie trope where, you know, he's the architect in the big city in New York, you know, recently widowed, (laughs) you know, his his big bad boss is going to send him to the little Colorado town to develop, you know, a ski resort. So he takes his little daughter and then it's the cutest little Christmas town and Jane Kaczmarek is the postmistress. And, you know, he meets all the, the quirky town folk. And then by the end, you know, of course he wants to save the town. I am here, here for that kind of movie. (laughs) So I enjoyed it thoroughly. It's on Tubi. You guys, T-U-B-I, if you don't have that, you can find a lot of old stuff there. I'm currently watching Family from episode one all the way through on Tubi. Um, But The Christmas Gift, add it to your Christmas movie rotation. It's really cute. We'll put that in the show Um, notes. Yeah, and I'll put it in the weekly reader this week. Yeah, Yeah. Um, I'll send it right to you, Colleen. Those are (laughs) such a Colleen You guys, I have, I'm showing Carolyn and Kristen. I mean, those are just ones that I (gasps) wanted to talk about, but he has over 30 um, TV and film credits. So I just wanted to highlight those though. That's amazing. I have a feeling his career, his film career would have been very different if he had actually accepted a role that he was offered. Now, I cannot believe this, but I double checked it. He was offered the lead role in an officer and a gentleman oh god no 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 you guys i found it in a couple of places in different articles that yes that does not offer me i and i will just i'll triple check before we put it out there and i'll let you know but i i I say let's just go with it it's a great (laughs) it's a great nugget yes let's just just i wrote it down and then i read it Mm-hmm. Yes, I. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, Richard Gere, John Denver. It, I, I have nothing left to say. Oops, no, because I mean, when I was watching the Christmas Gift in nineteen, it's nineteen eighty six. So he's got the very, very hip for nineteen eighty six. Almost the mullet type hair, where it's cut straight across yeah. the ear and then longer in the back. He's lost the little glasses, but I was still kind of giggling watching him as the romantic lead. You know, and I know mm-hmm. we talk about that in Oh God, it worked with Terry Garr, right. it whatever, but yep. it was just a little like he's going to come into this town and immediately like he, sweep this woman off her feet and all of this stuff. And that's a horrible thing for me to say that I'm, you know, basing that on his appearance, but he always just has that kind of youthful, oh gosh, golly look to him, doesn't he? And that, that, and that is attractive in its own context. For sure, I mean, but not clearly, in an officer and a gentleman. Or but as a not an officer leader. and a gentleman Here. is supposed to be. Here's like an article. And there they are next to each other. I don't know if you can really see it, but... (laughs) Look at the 
can you see that would not you guys can't be showing us i don't want him to be suave (laughs) one picture you guys is care is carolyn showing us is richard gear in the navy whites or the naval whites with the hat and the broad shoulders Mm -hmm. and oh god you guys seriously what did that do to all of us as young i know impressionable Mm -hmm. girls and then john denver in his down in his puffy vest yes puffy vest his flannel shirt and the wire the wire glasses yes which is sexy that is sexy mm. but it's a different kind of it's sexy, sexy. Yeah. it's the it's the annie song sexy like we want you to be rocky mountain sexy not um like tuxedo sexy that's something different and again know. don't try to be something you're not i know care can you imagine him carrying deborah winger i just can't no. imagine him carrying deborah winger he seems like he could that she's taller than him, maybe. I no, don't know. He, he could. He could carry Deborah Winger okay. down the mountain in his puffy vest. Oh, there you go. <laughs> See, that works. Could throw but her the not back of out a horse. of the factory in in his dress whites. Oh my that's, gosh, that's Crazy. not right. So I don't think it's any surprise to anyone that John Denver was an activist on a massive scale. Most of his songs are about the natural world, the wonder that he feels when he's in the Rocky Mountains or observing the sky or on the ocean. We talked about the song Calypso, which is literally an ode to Jacques Cousteau's exploratory vessel named Calypso. And he wrote that song on the Calypso, on board the ship, to celebrate and support the work of Jacques Cousteau, who was the first person to do research on pollution and its effect on the sea. So in the song, it says, um, to live on the land, we must learn from the sea, joyful and loving and letting it be. I, Calypso, I sing to the spirit, the men who have served you so long and so well. He's applauding the environmental work of these pioneers. And even if the song wasn't about nature, nature was still a major player. Always. You fill up my senses like a night in the forest. Right? He had something to say about how the natural world was something to be saved. Um, You know what I forgot to tell you guys? I was going to send this to you. Shoot, maybe I can still send it. So when I was up north this week, this will probably get cut out, but I'm going to send this to you anyway. I was at at Split Rock State Park, and I come across – I'm just walking, walking, walking along the beach, and I see a little opening in the forest, and there's a little glen in there. And I was just like, oh! Oh my God, it's like a little hobbit hole. Look at it. And I go in there and I sit down on a bench. I'm sending this to you. Not a bench. I sit down on a log. And I had my phone with me. And I started playing Annie's song. (laughs) I literally played it in the middle of the forest. Okay, it's coming right now. And then I'll send you a picture of my log. Here's my log. And I was like, if somebody comes along right now, and it's like, why are you playing music in this beautiful state forest? Isn't that beautiful? So beautiful. And I, and of course, I cried. <laughs> I mean, of how do you not cry? It was a night in the forest. Right. See, That's it was beautiful. Goddippity. Yes, it was. He was in his heart an environmentalist, just begging people to look up at the mountains and see what he was seeing in hopes that they would care to preserve it in the same way that he does. And in this way, his protest, as it were, was wrapped in celebration instead of anger. And this was on purpose. He insisted that the word protest meant speaking up for something, 
not speaking against something. He never wanted to pollute his lyrics with politics because he thought music was more effective. It tapped into people's deepest feelings and it bridged the gap better than traditional political communication. Unlike, say, like Marvin Gaye's Mercy, Mercy Me, which is basically a list of climate crimes, like where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows. Or Big Yellow Taxi, Pave Paradise, Put Up a Parking Lot. So, and he didn't just put this positivity into his songs. In 1976, he co-founded the Windstar Foundation, a nonprofit environmental education and research center that still exists today. He also founded Plant It 2020, which also still exists today, which is devoted to planting indigenous trees. I mean, it's just it's just amazing the things that he did. He even testified at the congressional hearings um, with Tipper Gore in 1985 when they were trying to get parental um, advisory labels on music. Do you remember this? Oh, the yeah. The PMRC. I don't even remember what PMRC stands for. John Denver was one of the most impactful people testifying because Rocky Mountain High had been broadly banned on radio stations across the nation because they said it had drug references in it. And he was like, you idiots, you're missing the point. Are you really going to bury the purest of messages because of your misinterpretation of the word high? Mm-hmm. Right. And he was like, get your heads out of your asses. He was, he, along with Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister, were the two most celebrated people <laughs> testifying on Capitol Hill that day. That's a pair. Are you, I, seriously, and they were probably fast friends after that. They right. were like, long live. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good enough that you, you should look it up on YouTube. You'll find it. And it's just it's the way he talks about, he tells the story, actually, Michelle, of why he wrote Rocky Mountain High and what mm-hmm. the word high means to him and, and what it means. Um, but he was more than an environmentalist. He said, I am a global citizen. I want to work toward a world in balance, a world that creates a better quality of life for all people, which led him to champion a multitude of causes, including homelessness, the HIV AIDS crisis, and most notably, world hunger. He did as much for world hunger as he did for the environment. He was asked to serve on the Presidential Commission on World and Domestic Hunger, I think by Jimmy Carter. Um, He co-founded the Hunger Project, his own nonprofit. He toured African countries devastated by drought and famine, and he performed benefit concerts to raise awareness and funds to fight hunger around the world, all of which resulted in his being awarded the Presidential World Without Hunger Award. This is big stuff, Uh which makes it very strange that he was not a part of one very historic moment in the history of fighting hunger. Mm-hmm. He was rejected, <sighs> yes, rejected from, from contributing to We Are the World. Yes. The song, of course, it was a benefit anthem for um, fighting hunger in Africa. Everyone was on this song, you guys. All of the people. Can somebody please tell me why Dan Aykroyd was in the room? <laughs> but John Denver was not. And John Denver had done more to fight hunger than all of those people combined. He was really the only person. Okay, I don't know jack shit. But I'm going to say he was the (laughs) only person to do anything for world hunger besides that song. All of those people, again, I don't know jack shit, showed up that day and were like, look what I did for world hunger. But they just showed up that day. Not that they didn't care. They cared. And he was rejected. And it wasn't just that he wasn't invited. He was rejected. Did they, do and we know his, why? Yes, we do. Um, 
The producer has said that there were many people who were rejected, but John Denver was the most difficult one to turn down because of his involvement in fighting world hunger. But he wasn't a current artist. He hadn't had a hit in a year, in years and years. But I'm sorry. Bob Dylan hadn't, he wasn't on the charts and he's right. like, mm, no food in Africa. <laughs> Children oh, are hungry. I know. I hated that part of the song. Yeah. I know. Why does Bob Dylan get to be there and John Denver is not? And in John Denver's biography, he actually said how heartbroken he was mm. to not be allowed to participate in that. That hurts my heart. Isn't yeah, that that's horrible? Terrible. And everyone would have known who he was, you know, when they were like, yes, when they pan the group and yes. do the close-ups and all that. Yeah. Because I don't even know. If, when I watch it now, I can't tell you that I know every single person in right. the group that's singing. I might be like, oh, they look vaguely familiar, but I wouldn't be able to tell you their name. So in terms mm-hmm. of lasting legacy, oh, I'm sorry. Poor I John. Know, I'm sorry, John Denver. Yeah. Well, not only did John have impact in those areas that you just talked about, Kristen, I don't know if you guys knew, he um, was very interested in the space project. And he worked with NASA and did some things with NASA and was part of the Citizens in Space program. He was being trained to perhaps be one of the first non-astronauts to go aboard a space shuttle flight. Oh, wow. Oh. He was not obviously the first citizen to go up. He was, it was narrowed down. I'm not sure how many, like three, it was down to three people. And of course we know that Krista McAuliffe, the school teacher was the one who actually took that spot. And space space shuttle challenger. Yes. When the, um, on the space shuttle challenger, which Mm -hmm. of course um, we've talked about before, um, exploded right after takeoff. And there was a chance that John Denver could have been on that flight but he did, in turn, write a song dedicated to that flight and to Krista McAuliffe. But yeah, t- to be uh, somebody and just another interest that he had and to take the time to get educated and p- perhaps be one of the people that could have gone up mm-hmm. like an astronaut. Pretty cool. Yeah. Above and below. Think about that. So his, his, his eyes were turned above to the sky and below to the oceans and to the ground beneath his mm-hmm. feet and the mountains in front of our eyes and the trees overhead. Isn't that amazing? That's beautiful. Amazing. That should be the lyrics to another, a new song. Coming this summer from <laughs> Kristen we can write a tribute song. Right. John Denver. Because <laughs> we, and, sadly. And we'll sing it. Yeah. <laughs> hot stuff, baby, yeah. this evening. I got the hot stuff tonight. It's so classic. But it makes, doesn't it make it all the more sad that we lost him so young? Oh, it's, when it just you makes it so much more of a all loss. All of the impact right? mm-hmm. that he was making um, on the world. And that he still had yet to do. Not just musically, yes. but through yeah. the no, good right. that he was doing. That he was world, so yeah. invested in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember. On October 12th, 1997, when I turned on the Today Show, as I did every day before work, and they announced that John Denver had been killed when the plane he was piloting crashed into the ocean off the coast of Monterey, California, and he was only 53 years old. And I remember feeling like a hand was reaching into my childhood and taking something away. It was one of my very first losses of a Gen X hero. 
I was just, I wasn't even 30 years old yet. I was just getting old enough to start accessing my own nostalgia because, you know, you grow up and you start to look back on the things from your childhood with a more sophisticated lens, a more sophisticated eye. And, you know, so I could have seen John Denver as something from the past, something that was kind of nerdy and goofy. And I was far more sophisticated than that. But I was growing up now and I was getting distance from that. And I was crossing the threshold into really embracing um, and recognizing the things that were so important to me when I was a kid. That was the power that he had over me. And I, and I remember going to work and just, I needed to find someone to be sad with me. I was just like mm-hmm. walking around, I'm working in this library and I'm like, hello, hello. And all the cynicism was gone. Everyone came out of the closet that day to acknowledge how important his music was to them. And there was very quickly an essay, an op-ed that came out in the Chicago Daily Herald. And you guys, I looked for this. I dug and I could not find it. I seriously thought, I'm going to call the Chicago Daily Herald. Very quickly, there was an op-ed by a woman who acknowledged everything that we were feeling. Like, yes, the haircut was funny and the glasses were funny, but this came from a different era in which we thought of things differently. And when you walk down the aisle... And some guy you paid 50 bucks is singing, you fill up my senses like a night in the forest. That is forever. That's Mm -hmm. forever. And he gave that to us. And so I like printed it off. And I'm running around the library showing this to people because it was really an awakening for me. That was one of my first nostalgic moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I I don't remember. I don't have a memory of where I was when I heard, but I do remember feeling just the weight of just the tragedy of it um, just because of the yeah. way it happened and just feeling that kind of g- gutted, you know, yucky tummy feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then not really knowing, I think I've, I've gone decades, you know, of course we all know, Oh, you know, he was flying the, you know, the type of plane he was flying, not exactly the type of plane, but you know, it wasn't like a commercial plane that right. it was more like a glider type plane and he was alone. But it wasn't until just sometime this summer when, again, sitting around the bonfire, my husband and I are listening to John Denver and we start talking about him and his death and we start asking questions to each other. Wait, was it this? And how? And wait, was it? Yeah. Was he with someone? And was he alone? So of course we, you know, we know how we can find out the answers. We have something in our pockets that will help us. And we start doing research. And some of the stuff I found out, I wish I wouldn't have found out. Um, You know, that he was flying illegally. His flying license had been suspended at the time because of some several um, DUIs. However, he, there was no drugs or alcohol found um, in his system. Um, but just that, just the, that I think it could have been so preventable. And with many of these types of accidents, it could have, but that there was like this hard to access gas handle in the type of plane he was flying. And he took off, he did like three touch and go landings at the Monterey airport before. And his fuel level was low and they knew that before. And the guy came in and was showing him how you have to reach behind you. It's a, it's a faulty design, um, basically is what they were admitting at the time, like, yes, we need to fix. And the guy actually said to John Denver, who like designed the plane, we're working, we're working on putting that in a different place, but here's what you have to do. If you have to switch fuel tanks, you have to like lean back, reach behind you, whatever. Right. So a lot of people have speculated because he had low fuel when he left that he was switching, he was leaning back, grabbing the lever to switch the gas tanks. The plane went into a nosedive However, 
Some pilots don't believe that the placement of the valve would have made the plane nosedive like that because there was a lot of witnesses. It was only, it wasn't that far Mm -hmm. off the coast. Regardless of how it happened or what the cause, the exact cause of it was, I don't think we'll ever know. I just think that no matter what, it was such a loss and so tragic and just one of those awful accidents that nobody's going to know and shocked us all and gutted us all. Well, and when you, and we could go on and on and on, but when you were showing me how you were going behind and reaching for that mm-hmm. thing, think about when you're driving a car and you're trying to get something in your backseat, how many of us have not like accidentally jerked the wheel? Right. That's what I was thinking. Exactly. Yeah. That he could have like, or, you know, kicked Overcorrected. Something. Yeah. And like well, some lever and then freaked out and. Right. right. And if we, and they do say there was no distress calls. He never, but I think it happened so quickly. So after doing this episode, you guys, I have a new bucket list item, and I'm going to throw this to the listeners, too. I think this would be good for the soul. Apparently, in Aspen, Colorado, you can visit the John Denver Sanctuary, where his lyrics are inscribed on granite rock boulders along a pure mountain stream. Come on, you guys. It would be a moment to appreciate how those songs have permeated our culture and our hearts and minds, how he created cultural touchstones, not just for our generation, but for all the generations that come after us, because these are living on. And to honor how those songs make us feel about the world. It's impossible to listen to Rocky Mountain High or even Annie's song and not look around you and feel grateful for the beauty of the natural world. That is his legacy. And my heart is full of gratitude for John Denver. Thanks for listening today, and we will see you next time. To those of you who share our podcast with others, like everyone you know, and to those of you who click those stars and leave a review where you listen, a huge, huge thank you. That helps others know that our conversations are worth listening to, and we think they are. And if you haven't done those things yet, thank you in advance, because we know you're just about to go do that, aren't you? Um, And to our supporters on Patreon, there's honestly not even a high enough five for the amount of support you give us. You guys honestly keep this whole thing trucking, and we couldn't do this without you. Today, we're giving a special shout out to patrons Amy, Allie, Beth, Carmi, Stella, and another Amy, because it was the 1960s and 70s. Everyone's name was Amy. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of the cast of Three's Company, to good times. To happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. Cheers. Cheers. The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. Get out.